Uh, turn with me over to the book of John. We're going to continue our series on worship. And the title of today's message is Worship in Spirit and in Truth. Worship in Spirit and in Truth. John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Lord, help us as we study. A couple of things I'd like to <clears throat> speak with you about here. It's one, the placement of worship and how it's expanded. And then the people who are supposed to be worshipers. Let me give you the background to this passage. Jesus is heading from Jerusalem to Galilee. <clears throat> Galilee was home. That's where he spent most of his time ministering. Though we have so many highlights in Jerusalem, he would come to Jerusalem primarily for the feasts. And there he would minister. But most of the disciples were found in Galilee. That's where he did most of his preaching ministry. And he was on his way back. <clears throat> and he stops off at a well. The well happens to be in a place called Samaria. Now, Samaria is the, uh, used to be capital of the northern kingdom. When there were monarchies, where you had one kingdom to the north called Israel and a kingdom to the south called Judah, both of whom came from the same people. They were all children of Abraham, but they split after the days of Solomon. And so you had ten tribes to the north. Solomon was king. You had ten tribes to the north, and you had two tribes to the south, Judah and Levi. Maybe a little bit of Benjamin they shared, we're not quite sure, but we do know that ten tribes went to the north primarily. And that northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. The northern kingdom didn't have one good king, not one. They didn't worship right. They had the most powerful prophets from the Old Testament literature, Elijah and Elisha. Both of them were northern kingdom prophets. Yet they didn't listen to them. Miracles, people raised from the dead, they wouldn't listen. So after about 250 years, God said, I'm done. And he caused the kingdom of Assyria to the north to come down and to fight Israel and to disperse them, conquer them, disperse them to the four corners of the earth. They left some of the poor people that they believed would be drains on their local economies wherever the Assyrians uh, dominated. They left the poor in Israel. And then they brought some of their own people in, the Syrian people, to populate the, the land and to bring commerce and, and work the fields. Well, the people who were Israelites and the people of the Assyrians commingled, both genetically in producing children and in culture as well as heritage. So you get a brand new people called the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were not were not really accepted by the Jews as legitimate Jews, even though they had Jewish heritage and they had some Jewish kind of draw and worship. 
they were very synchronistic in their orientation. They looked at the, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as their fathers, but then they also combined some of the Assyrian practices, and so idolatry was a regular part of what they did. And so the Jews looked at the, the Samaritans, really, even though they were kind of a composite and, and hybrid of Israel, they looked at them as unclean. Unclean like us, we Gentiles. So the rule was you did not eat from a Samaritan's plate. If they offered you a cup of water, you wouldn't take a drink from it. If something was offered to you on a Samaritan plate, you would not only not take it, but you would break the plate. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. In return, the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Now, the rules that the Jews made up weren't approved by God, but they were legitimate in terms of enforcement by the religious elite of the day. It's not that God didn't like Samaritans, just like God likes everybody. I mean, he, he loves the world. But the Jews were trying to figure out how they could keep themselves, quote-unquote, clean from the rest of the world. All that to say, when Jesus stops at this well, he's in Samaria, and a woman comes. And she's drawing, well, uh, drawing water from this well, going to take it back into Samaria. And he begins a conversation with her. First thing he says is, give me a drink. And she says, now how, you being a Jew, can you ask me, a Samaritan, to give you a drink? Now Jesus crossed a couple, of, a couple of boundaries on this, this request. One, he was a Jew speaking with a Samaritan about getting a drink of water. I just told you what people did who were Jewish. They didn't even, they didn't even touch the cup of a Samaritan, much less drink out of it. So he was asking for water, and the woman was saying, how is this so? Secondly, a man never talked to a woman in public. Unless it was his wife, his mama, his sister, some relative. That never happened. So Jesus is violating cultural norms here in order to minister to this woman on many levels. Yet he cares about this woman. And he not only cares about her, he cares about her city. So he's got a strategy. Now the woman has no idea who Jesus is. Super important for the points I'm about to make. She has no idea who Jesus is. He's just a guy. Are you listening to me? He's just a guy. Now, Jesus knows who she is. So, <clears throat> he says, give me a drink. He says, well, why are you a Jew asking Samaritan for a drink? This isn't right. He said, if you knew who was asking you, you'd ask of me and I'd give you water so you wouldn't have to draw again. Well, what are you going to draw with? You don't have a cup. You don't have a, a ladle. You ain't got a bucket. The well's deep. He said, oh, the kind of water I want to give is living water. And you will never thirst again if you take the water I get. Now, that is some good preaching. Jesus, from our perspective, that's good preaching. And you know where it's leading. This woman doesn't know he's a prophet. This woman thinks he's a prospect. Are you listening to me? So she is, she's communicating with this man about water. And he's asking her for a drink. And, she, and, and he's saying, I got some water for you. That's what she hears. 
That's what she hears. Jesus isn't saying that, but that's what she hears. And so Jesus, when, when he hears her say, oh, you got some water? I want, I want some of your water. You got that living light, that everlasting, that kind of water I never, give me some of your water. Now, why would we think that she would have a religious response? Except that we, we contextualize her in what we know is going to happen. But this is just a woman who is ungodly, and we know from what Jesus is about to say, that she has had five husbands. And she's still got it going on where she can attract men. That she's living with a guy who's not her husband. So this is number six. But she's still got it going on where every man says yes. She's, she's very attractive in some kind of way. And she's living in Samaria, and she got a reputation probably. And, and, and everybody said, well, I was with her for a little bit. She was good for a moment, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I had to, had to let that go. Well, she's off. She's, a, she's, she's hot. I'm a, and everybody tries. Now, I'm not being misogynistic with respect to this woman. The guys she probably had were all duds. But can we, be, can we say just from this narrative that she has issues? Is that fair? This woman has some issues. Five husbands and she's living with a guy who's not her man. She's got problems. And so she comes out to draw water, not knowing who Jesus is, thinking probably, "Mm, he's number seven. Mm, 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 mm. And Jesus changes the narrative in a hurry. He says, oh. You want some of my water? Go get your husband. I'm not married. I'm not married. I ain't got a husband. When a girl tells you that, you know she's saying something. I ain't married. (laughs) Jesus says, you're right. You ain't married. But you have been married five times to the man you're living with now, not your husband. Oh, he changes the entire Entire tone, the climate just changed in a minute. He wouldn't let her go down that road of trying to establish something outside of spiritual bounds. Wouldn't do it. He set the tone immediately. Now, she backs up. Oh, oh, you one of them. You a preacher. Okay. You a, pre- I get, you a preacher. I, I get that. You a preacher. You a prophet. I get it. Okay, 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 okay. I got, I got it. I got it. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not thirsty anymore. I ain't thirsty. <laughs> Uh, uh, hey, 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 I got a question for you. I got a question for you. Um, you, you, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, but we believe we should worship in this mountain like our father Jacob. What you say? Now, haven't you been with people who, who have talked for the last 25 minutes? Talked about their exploits, who they've been with, who they hadn't been with, where they partied, what clubs are nicest, and all of a sudden they realize you're a real Christian. And he said, oh, 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 yeah, my uncle was a pastor. Uh-huh. Yeah, my, my, my grandmama, she was a deacon, had the white gloves, took the offerings every Sunday morning. Mama drug us to church. Yeah, I remember the preacher hollering. Uh-huh, I was right there. That's what this girl's doing. Pulling out all of her religious identification so that Jesus can, can, can somehow perceive her as being legit. Though the last 10 minutes, <laughs> she has been anything but. 
And the beauty is this, even though she's, if not all wrong, as close as you could be, Jesus loves this woman like no man ever has. He's about to help her. And letting her understand, I, I, you do what I say, you'll be filled so you won't have to find man number seven. You won't be looking for fulfillment in the wrong places. I'll help you. I'll teach you what worship is like. And your life, your, your jar will be filled and you will never have to thirst again. He's trying to help this woman. And he, he, he responds to her, answers her question, only by politeness. Because he's getting down to the crux of what worship really is. And he says, placement isn't the issue. Location's not the issue. It's not the location isn't important. It's just it's not the basis for what God does. It doesn't matter whether you're on the mountain or whether you're in Jerusalem. Because God's about to do something that's different than that. He's not going to be location-based. Now, if people worship him in a certain location, that location then has some degree of importance because the people are there and God showed up where the people were. But it's not that the location itself is going to be the primary thing around which God bases whether he shows up. It's going to be people. And I'm changing the whole culture of what worship is. And I'm not just changing it, I'm re-emphasizing that which always has been. It's just that mankind's mind has only been able to wrap itself around location. And so wherever God appeared, that's, that's where we think he lives. Jacob, running from his brother Esau. Esau's trying to kill him. Because J- Jacob swindled them both out of the birthright and the blessing. And, and mama, mama said to him, you got to go because your brother wants to kill you. So Jacob leaves in a hurry. Clothes on his back, a few provisions, but nothing more. And he finds a place to sleep for the first night, puts a rock under his head, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he sees a dream of angels ascending and descending on this ladder. This is the first time that, that, that Jacob has heard or received communication from God. I don't think it's the first time God ever tried to speak to him. I just know God. God likes to speak to people a lot. It's just that we don't, we don't have the dial set at the right place. So we haven't picked up the signal. Now he's out on his own, scared to death for his life, not knowing what's going to be on the other side. It's amazing how trials make you more sensitive to God. All of a sudden, you you think prayer is important then. When you're going through stuff, ooh, I, I better go to church. I better start reading my Bible. You start trying to get your ear attuned to what he might say. Now Jacob's heart has been rent. Something's happening. He's able to receive what he normally ignored. And he wakes up. And he says this, this can be none other than the house of God. And he calls that place Bethel. So in his mind, it's not that God was with him, it's that he came to God's house and he didn't know it. That God dwelt in this location and he happened to have entered into a portal through which God enters into the world. That was reinforced by the idea that the promised land was the place where the people of God would dwell. And where God would bless them in it. So he would be with them. That little piece of property there at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea on the east side. God was going to be a part of that. And so they thought God was much more into location than he was into people. But everything about what God started in the beginning with his people. When he galvanized the people of Israel and called them a nation. 
was about movement. It wasn't about placement. God could have decided to live in any kind of structure he wanted and reproved David when it came time to build him a permanent structure. Now, there were reasons why David wasn't able to do it, beyond just the fact that God wasn't ready. David was a man of war. He wouldn't let him do it. He was a man of bloodshed. He wanted a son of peace. His son, a king who was involved in peace, prince of peace, built his house. And so there were all kinds of spiritual and prophetic reasons why God would not let David do it. But from the time they came out of Egypt till David's time, which is right around 1000 A.D., God was in a tent. And it wasn't because the, 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 the tent was his preferred dwelling place, meaning that he liked to, to dwell in places with rods and curtains. It was because the tent was mobile. He could move. Are you listening to me? He could move. If that wasn't evidence, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God behind the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, there was the outer court, the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was separated by a curtain. On the inside was the Ark of the Covenant. Most of you don't know what that means, but you remember the, that thing that Indiana Jones was chasing? Yeah. <laughs> Ark of the Covenant, a big, big box. 18 inches by 2 feet, wood overlaid with gold, cherubim angels on the top, beautiful, beautiful piece of furniture. On the inside, Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and a jar of manna. Um, This represented God's presence in the earth. And the only way that was to be carried around from one place to another was on the shoulders of the priests. God was all about mobility. He wasn't about being stuck in a spot. In fact... He represented himself as being so mobile that he said, I choose to be carried on the shoulders of human beings. So when you go into your cubicle and go to work on Tuesday, you can carry God with you. Are you listening to me? And all of a sudden, that cubicle, that 10 by 12, becomes holy. It becomes holy because you brought God up in there. Forgive my use of two prepositional phrases here. So location, even though it can be important, it is not the basis upon which God does anything anymore. And if Jesus, not only did he speak it here, but he amplified the whole idea as he was leaving. He said, I want you all, I know you're in Jerusalem now, I know you're in the promised land, but I want you all to go. You go into all the world and take this message of redemption with you, this gospel. And what will happen? I will be with you wherever you go. I'm going to be with you. And wherever you land, that place will be holy because I'm there. It's not about location. It's about people. It's about people. He's saying a time is coming and now is where you're not going to worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But God is preparing a certain kind of people. A certain kind of people. And they're called true worshipers. True worshipers. So it's not about placement, it's about people. Though placement can't have a a role, it's more about people. Two people came to me in separate services today and said, Pastor, I don't know what it is, but when I walk in this building, I just sense the presence of God. I said, well, that's nice to know. But my my drywall, when it was created, nobody prayed over it. When it was made at the manufacturer, no holy oil was put on my drywall. That's just drywall. 
This carpet, manufactured by a human being, synthetic. Didn't come from heaven. Your chair, made by somebody. Nobody prayed over it when they were putting it together. What makes this environment feel different than Walmart? Same stuff. What makes this different than Walmart? You. God happens to abide in the presence of his people. In the praises of his people. And the kind of people that worship the right true worshipers, God shows up. And he allows his residual presence to be felt even when they aren't there. There were some guys in 2 Kings who had a buddy who died. And um, they were going to bury him. Had him mummified the whole works. Funeral procession on the way. And some marauders from another country had come into the city, come into the area, the region. And these guys saw these marauders and they knew they were in trouble. They were going to kill them and take all their stuff. And so rather than trying to find a place to, to properly place their friend, they threw him in the nearest grave they could find, nearest tomb. And, and not a grave, don't think six feet under, think, think hollowed out cave of a, of a mountain, a hill, a sepulcher. They threw him in the nearest tomb they could find. And then they ran off. They said, we'll figure this out later. We'll come back and get him. It turned out to be Elisha's tomb. I'll just say it like this. They didn't have to come back and figure out how to rebury him. When he landed on Elisha's bones, he came alive. God can abide in structures. He does that. He will abide in inanimate stuff, but it's only because somebody abided there first. It's only because life existed in that environment first. So it's not so much about the placement, although placement can be recognized. It's about the people. And he's looking for true worshipers. And he says about the people that true worshipers are those which are first identified. Meaning, he says that there are, by saying there are true worshipers, he's also implying there's something not so true. I'm not going to say false, because I don't think, I don't think you're, you're all wrong. I don't think that's what he's trying to say. He's just saying there's some, are better, some, some are better than this than others. True worshipers. Now, if you have begun, you just got right with God and you're trying to figure this out, you probably are still trying to, to, to see how in the world can I best incorporate Jesus Christ in my life in every area. And so you may not be as proficient at worship as you would like, but you're getting there. But true worshipers have a passion to make sure that the next day was better than their last. They're more obedient next week than they were last week. That's their goal. True worshipers are trying to, to, to be identified as such by God and not lacking worshipers. So having said that, how does God identify you? I'm, I'm, I'm grateful he identifies you as a son or daughter. Huge. There's no way that anybody would ever want to minimize the fact that you're going to heaven and you are his. Massive. But that's what he's done for you. What you done for him? Isn't there something incongruous about him giving his all for your benefit to get you right? 
and you trying to half step? Always trying to minimize your, your commitment to him and trying to figure out what you can get away with and still get to heaven? Something's wrong with that. He's looking for true worshipers. People that incorporate all of their life into the decision-making process of what pleases him, makes him happy. Our goal is to bring pleasure to our God, to bless him as he has blessed us, to approximate the, the joy we have experienced as a result of salvation and let it bounce back as a reflection. That's what our goal should be in every area of our life. So if you want to be a true worshiper, then you're going to have to, you're going to, have to say, mm, I probably ought to apply worship to my life in more areas than just on Sunday morning at 1245. Because that's just one hour out of 168. I don't think that would characterize you as being a true worshiper. That's more of a part-time worshiper. Part-time. Probably not even part-time. I'm being really generous. Intermittent worshiper. True worshipers are trying to figure out how can I apply the principles of God at the highest level to every area of my life. And do you know during this, this set of, of this series on worship, it's been about seven weeks now, maybe eight, I haven't yet talked about what we do on Sunday morning. I haven't talked about singing, songs, playing, why we sing the same song, the same words in the same song over and over and over again. That, that's intentional. Why we lift our hands, why we clap, what's the importance of dancing, why would God put those things in there, how congregational worship is expressively different than your own individual devotional life, and why it's important for us to be on the same page when we talk about who God is for at least 15 or 20 minutes, because something happens in the heavenlies, and we need to experience, I haven't talked about any of that. Everything about worship has been what happens outside of this building. And we need... We need to concentrate on that because this expression in Sunday morning is supposed to be the overflow of your obedience all week long. It's not supposed to be the concentration of your life. It's not supposed to be the focus. And what we do is we try to use this moment as a substitute for our obedience. God help. God help. There were some fellows who tried to do that. And Jesus talked about it. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Some people want to say, Lord, Lord, and make it, make it, make it be a, the, 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 the religious phrase that covers up all their disobedience. Lord, 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 Lord. Lord, you know me, Lord. Lord, Lord. Come on now, I'm with you. I've been with you since I was seven. Went to Sunday school. Vacation Bible school. Lord, Lord. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, did we not cast out devils? Didn't we perform any miracles? Didn't we, didn't we prophesy in your name? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. So here we have some guys that were substituting, substituting their obedience with ministry. Didn't we do all, didn't I preach the paint off the walls? Didn't I build a big church? Didn't I cast out devils for you? Ain't that good enough? 
Well, no, you kept stepping out on your wife. We got issues with that. Yeah, that didn't work out so good. Yeah, you weren't a very good husband. You weren't a very good father either. You didn't really love your kids like you should. Remember that time you took some money from the church and nobody knew about it? Yeah, that wasn't good either. And you haven't forgiven this person that spoke ill of you. You, haven't, you have malice toward this person. You're not loving your neighbor as you should. You don't do a thing with respect to your enemies. You treat them like enemies. They don't love them like I love them. You haven't obeyed me in most areas, but you think you can substitute all of your anointing for that. Wrong. Be a true worshiper. A true worshiper. And he says, true worshipers do some things. First of all, he says, they will worship. <laughs> true worshipers will worship, he said. So if you are, a, you may not hear God say you are a true worshiper, but you can figure it out if you worship. So if you are complying with his will in every area of your life, doing the best you possibly can, not just recognizing him as Lord in title, but Lord in function, not just looking at that as a, as, a, as a thing you need to acknowledge with respect to his position, but you want him to be it practically in your life, Lord of every area of your life. If you are that, then you will worship. If you're a true worshiper, then it's going to be reflected in what you do and what you think and the decisions you make. You will worship. And if you have problems worshiping, then you probably aren't a true worshiper. And how will you worship? In spirit and in truth. Spirit is the word pneuma. It means breath in Greek. Now you have three different languages being bantered around in the New Testament. They spoke Aramaic. They wrote in Greek. And they had Hebrew minds. So you have to combine all of that in the understanding of what was communicated whenever you're reading the New Testament. And this is probably how it sounded. And the word pneuma, even though it's foreign to us, we have one word that we use in kind of a, a derivation of it. Pneumonia. It describes the disease of the lungs that doesn't allow you to breathe. Pneuma means breath. So this is how they probably heard it. True worshipers will worship in breath and truth. So with all of your breath, you need to worship. With all of your breath, you need to worship. And it needs to become so rote, like breathing, you don't think about it. You just breathe, but you didn't know it. You weren't cognizant of it. It just happens naturally. That's the way obedience ought to be. You shouldn't have to re-decide every day. Should I sleep with her? Huh. I wonder if God would forgive me. I think he'll, he'll forgive me. I probably, yeah, she's pretty. Okay. No. Knee jerk. Absolutely not. You don't even have to ask the question. Stop it right now. Should I move in with him? Hmm. Hmm. He said he loves me. Hmm. You don't need to re-decide that. It's knee jerk like breathing. Nope. <laughs> this is the way it's supposed to be. With all of your breath and without thought. You just do it. Now, again, I'll keep saying this. If you just got into the thing, you are trying to figure out how to make it knee jerk. 
how to make it so natural that you don't have to think about it. And you need to develop some things, and we'll get into what truth looks like in a minute. Truth is that which helps you understand how to become what you need to be when you don't know you need to be it. But breath gives us a, an understanding of how things need to happen, what it's supposed to look like. With all of our breath, we are to worship him. And we are to worship him without thought, meaning it comes so natural that we just please him every day. We don't have to be told all the time. We're doing highest and best for our God. Then we worship with, in, in truth. Truth means that there are guidelines. You, you just can't worship the way you want to. You can't, you can't decide that this is the way you've, you've formulated how worship ought to be best expressed to God. You have to, wor you have to worship according to how he wants to be worshipped. February 14, 1988, a day that will live in infamy in my life. I'd been married for 14 months. We were making maybe $20,000 a year. And um, Cynthia just quit her job. We had one baby, our oldest. And it was Valentine's Day, and I knew I needed to get her something. But, but we also had some other practical needs in the house. Cynthia had expressed to me that she would like to get a new vacuum cleaner. So I, I put two and two together. I did that. I did it. For Valentine's Day, I got her a brand new vacuum cleaner. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I did that. I did that. Rationalization, I didn't have enough money to do both. Just trying to figure it out. And I, I thought, well, you know, she said she needs one and we need our four floors clean. And <laughs> Bad decision. Bad decision. brought it home God was trying to tell me that when I bought the vacuum cleaner at Sears I, I, the lady who, who was helping me purchase it the saleswoman said, said what are you doing for, you know, for, for Valentine's Day for your wife because it was the 13th she said I said I'm going to do vacuum cleaner she went I said, I wonder why she did that. <laughs> I think I'm blessing my wife. And her last words, as she gave me the receipt, I hope she likes it. It's exactly what she said. I hope she likes it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Brought it home, gave it to her. And she's amazing. She looked at me and she said, thank you, dear. Didn't complain a bit. Didn't get mad at me. But I could see in her eyes, I'd done something wrong. <laughs> I messed up somehow. I messed up, and I don't even know what I did. I really messed up here. I said, dear, I don't think I should have got you a vacuum cleaner for Valentine's Day. Oh, I said, sorry. 
Tell me what you want. Tell me how to do this better. I'm not good at How do I do this? We don't have a lot of money. How can I make you happy? And then she began to outline it. I said, done. I said, I promise you, I will only be an idiot once. <laughs> I'll never do this again. Without reading your Bible, you bring God vacuum cleaners every day. Every day, you bring God vacuum cleaners. And he'll pat you on the head and say, good try. Thank you. But it's not what he wants. We have to worship according to some processes, some rules. Read your Bible because that tells you how he wishes to be loved. Your Bible tells you how he wants to be loved. Jesus said it real clear in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, obey what I say. Doesn't matter how you feel. I know y'all, some of y'all say, I love God because you feel it. And yet you're disobeying all the time. You don't love him unless you obey. You can't define how he wants to be loved. He does. And he said, if you want to love me the way you're supposed to love me, obey me. Worship me on Tuesday. Worship in spirit and truth. And he said, for these are the people the Father seeks. It's one thing to seek God, and we all should do it. But if you've been in this thing long enough, you know it's, after a while, when you first get right with God, he's there every moment. Feeding you a bottle. Every time you cry, he shows up. It's amazing how God answers the novice and the newborn again person. It's wonderful. But after you've been with him a little bit, it's like he plays hide and seek. Where, 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 are, where are you now, God? I need you. I, I, it, I, I got, I, because he wants us to mature and, and, and seek after him and put our priorities last and be diligent to seek after him. Because it shows how much we love, how much we want and value his opinion in our life. And it's great to seek him. Please do. But it's so much better when he seeks you. Because he can find you a lot quicker than you can find him. But what is he seeking for? He's looking for such a people the Father seeks. True worshipers. Your job, if he's to seek after you, is to make his search short. Let a fragrance come from your life that just passing by, he goes, wait, 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 wait. Mmm, you smell good. My wife, she's wonderful. But when it's time for us to go out to dinner and she puts some of that good stuff off, she's communicating something to me. She passes by and I go, oh. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a good night. It's going to be a good night. God is looking for intimacy with you. He's looking for intimacy. He's looking to, to be in communion with you. And we capture his attention by our worship. In the Old Testament, they used to sacrifice animals. And, it, and God would say when it was a pleasing sacrifice, the aroma would rise. And it would be pleasing to his nostrils. In anthropomorphic terms, meaning God 
posing himself as a man, pleasing to his nostrils. Attract God's attention. Attract him. Don't make it impossible for him to pass you by. Looking for somebody else. Make his search short. And then lastly, he says, not only does he seek these people, but he says, God is a spirit, verse 24, and those who worship him must worship. Prior, he said, those who worship will worship. So will kind of encompasses opportunity, capacity, ability, practice. You get better at it because you've done it. But then he says, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him this way. There's no other way to worship. Listen to me. There is no other way to worship that makes him happy than for you to worship with all of your breath and to do it unconsciously and to do it with as much truth as you can possibly find. That is the way God wants us to, to love him. Worship like that. And then the outgrowth of that will produce hands of praise. Songs that are sung by more than just rote. Simply because you wor- know the words doesn't mean you worship them. It flows from you. It flows from you. And all of a sudden the heavens are opened because God found you. Not because you had to grope and find him. He found you. Let's pray.